On this podcast, we talk a lot about recruiting at scale, all about finding faster and better ways to attract talent to hypergrowth companies. Today, however, I want to shift gears and talk a little bit more about valuing and retaining that talent once they join the company. I've had jobs where I was doing something in a way that was different than how my manager would have done it. And I was getting feedback around, no, don't do it that way. I would do it this way, do it this way. And that's what success was benchmarked as. My manager saying, here's how I would do it. Please do it this way. And I'm coming in and saying, really frankly, as a woman, I can't adopt the same strategy as what you're adopting as a man. We humans tend to project our own worldview onto others and judge everything others do purely from our own perspective. To create a more inclusive workspace, though, managers have a duty to learn the art of deeply understanding others. Welcome back to Recruiting at Scale. As you know very well by now, this is a podcast where we typically interview talent acquisition leaders from some of the fastest growing companies over the past decade. However, today, I have the utmost pleasure of hosting a highly inspiring engineering leader, the VP of Engineering at LTSE, and my good friend, Tara. Tara, welcome to Recruiting at Scale. Uh, would you mind starting us off with a quick intro? Sure. My name is Tara Teich. I am the VP of Engineering at LTSC, and I've spent about 20 years in the software industry. Nice, nice. <laughs> I would love to dive into the journey a little bit, as I'm sure our listeners would love to know, like, what was that 20-year journey like? You know, what have you done in the beginning? How did you get into it? How did that journey transform into, take you to where you are today? I had a really straightforward path. From the time I was young, I really really love computers. My dad brought home a, a computer. The first portable computer I ever saw was not what you might call portable today. It looked like a desktop computer with a tiny, tiny little screen on it. So I've been, I've been sort of to get a lot, to kind of figure out how do I engage with my dad? It was oh, what are you doing on the computer, dad? Uh, and so since I was young, it was, I was like, you know, put me in his lap. And then we're like, here we are. And, and one of the first things I did on a computer was create a spreadsheet of all my books, <laughs> nice. catalog my books in a spreadsheet. So I'm going way back here, but that was where I kind of started was computers are great. They let me do lots of things and my dad is cool and he uses them. And so uh, I went straight into programming uh, as soon as I could take my first classes in high school. Uh, and I went to college for computer science and I went in with my major declared and I stuck with it and graduated and, and went to Northwestern and got my CS degree. And I was obsessed with video games. Uh, I loved games. I played all sorts of video games and I was like, I am going to go work in the games industry. And people were like, oh, that's, that's a terrible thing to do. And uh, I said, no, I want to work in games. So I feel like um, that hasn't changed, by the way. I'm sure this yeah. is like many, many years ago. But to this day, when people say, hey, I'm going to go work in games, the reaction is still somewhat the same. I mean, we could we can talk about that, and I would probably tell you not to work in games. <laughs> 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 but I did. Uh, and I went and uh, joined a small company that was in the Boston area called Mad Doc Software, where I, li I lived and worked there. And I was there for six years and got to work on a whole bunch of games. And I learned a lot. And I, I worked on real-time strategy games a lot, AI for real-time strategy games. I worked on a flight simulator. I worked on a Star Trek game, uh, all sorts of stuff. Then I came out to California, joined LucasArts, uh, worked on a Star Wars game, and um, then uh, spent a couple of years there joined one more game company out here called Double Fine. And then that, that was 10 years, 10 years in games. And I said, wow. uh, you know, 
I think I'm, I'm, I'm an adult now and I'm ready <laughs> to do something else. And I joined Apple mm-hmm. um, for a big shift. And I joined Apple as an iOS software performance engineer. So uh, I went from writing game code. Yeah, to um, making iOS feel so- super fast and awesome and responsive. And I, I stayed on that team for five years. Uh, working on software performance across all of Apple's uh, iOS products and got to work on maps and mail and messages and worked on the Apple Watch and just got to see everything. Um, Did that, worked on maps as a manager, and then I joined Stripe. Spent three years at Stripe. This is a really long story. But I joined Stripe. I spent three fabulous years at at Stripe learning more about startups and small Mm. companies and scale, which is what we'll be talking about. And I joined at 650 people and left at 2,500 people. And then I joined LTSC and I've been there for a little over two months. Awesome. I guess, how do you compare those companies, right? Because like gaming definitely has a certain culture, a certain way things are done. And Apple's, you know, known for its unique culture as well. Not as familiar with sort of the Stripe, Stripe culture, but I'm sure Stripe and Apple are probably a little bit more similar than the gaming companies you worked at. But I'm curious how you compare and contrast, like what is the same? What's the constant? It's still tech, right? It's still programming, but uh, what's the constant and what's very different among all of those different companies you worked at? I think the game companies are all a lot more similar than the non-game companies. Mm-hmm. And maybe things are different today because I left video games in 2010. So that was before the App Store. And that created such a change um, and a change in that environment and the kinds of business that are successful and like the rise of freemium games that I can't really opine on today. But at the time I was working on PC games, Windows games, Xbox 360, PlayStation 3 games, that kind of thing. And all of those companies had a lot more in common with each other than I've seen that they have with Apple or with Stripe. And the difference really is that they were all kind of fly by the seat of your pants and like, we can't learn anything about process. Like what are best practices? practices? How do you schedule? How do you plan? And it was kind of like, we can't do that. We're finding fun. You can't plan how long fun will take to find, which I don't believe. I right. believe you can you can plan at a, at a minimum and then add a buffer. Right. And so, so there was a kind of this sense that we don't need no stinking rules in games. And then at Apple, I went there and I was like, wow, everyone's very um, comparatively speaking, very formal in how they engage with each other at work. And it was like, they felt like professionals and adults and like treated each other with so much respect and it was more about how do I learn cool things as opposed to sort of um I don't know it's almost like identity politics like I think in video games there's a lot of this sort of sense of I'm doing this and I'm and my identity is that I'm a cool video game developer and it was less like I'm working on interesting challenging problems and that's my passion and I feel like at Apple and at Stripe and at LTSC as well it's more about I want to work on problems that challenge my mind and are exciting for me and that I, I get to learn something from yeah That's very interesting because, as you said, right, like gaming is known for a certain culture. But at the same time, I feel like games have inspired so many people to go into software development because Mm -hmm. as as a kid, it's one of the sort of most exciting connections you can make to a professional life, which is, say, I play games, I like games. Uh, What if I could build them, right? (laughs) And I think there is not as much of like, I use this cool software product, I want to build this cool software product, which doesn't necessarily happen. But I think, as you said, 
I think that's changing. And I think there's even a lot of research around like gender and in terms of who games cater to and how that eventually translates to male versus female CS majors. Uh, I don't know if you've ever looked into that, but there is, I've read research that says part of the reason that the CS sort of field is more male dominant is a lot of the games are more catered to the to the male audience which inevitably kind of translates to the interest and the attraction to it do you like agree disagree or do you think there is any merit to it i think it's true i mean i was i was considered an odd kid because uh i played video games you know Mm. like now if i tell you my story it's like wow that's so cool but i'm like hey i was you know 12 years old and i'm playing civilization in my in my attic uh uh, on a Saturday morning, um, and like well, you know, at the time we're talking in the in the 1990s, mid 1990s, like I played the first Civ Civilization, mm-hmm. and that was like super weird. And like my friends who were my girlfriends were like they didn't understand me. It was it was hard. And so now I do think that mobile games are actually, they actually skew more towards uh, women audiences. So casual mm-hmm. games on your phone, uh, there's been lots of studies, there's a lot more women, but those are adult women. So I don't know. I'm very curious to see what this generation, the like iPhone people that are growing up with that and growing up with games, will that inspire more of them to seek computer science degrees? I hope so. I hope they get excited about it. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm already seeing it. I have two girls and they play a lot of games and I don't discourage them at all and <laughs> i can already see this so like as soon as you mentioned like what do you want to be when you grow up the idea of like growing up and building one of those is exciting but at the same time you know i, I think the game development industry will hopefully eventually become a little bit more of a science and a process rather than just let's just hammer at it as a passion project <laughs> for a long yeah. period of time until something does it doesn't come out and maybe it's changing but i don't know i'm not yeah. in it anymore I, I think it is, but uh, it's still questionable how long it would take. Well, to shift gears a little bit and talk about recruiting, if you've listened to any of the previous episodes, most of the time, you know, the guests that I have on the show are talent acquisition leaders. So we talk a lot about like how to recruit talent, how to source, how to do talent branding, how to structure your recruiting process. And I think there is not enough talk about, well, how do we keep the talent that kind of we bring in, right? Like, how do we mm-hmm. uh, onboard them? How do we keep them? How do we engage them and make them an integral part of the team? Because honestly, if it's a leaky bucket, you can keep doing so much talent acquisition. It's nothing is going to stick, right? Very core principle in game design. Retention is a very, very important part <laughs> of acquisition strategy. And I know you're very passionate about this topic. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, um, I absolutely am. And the primary thing about it is understanding that everyone you're bringing in and that you're excited about bringing in because they have unique qualities, they bring those unique qualities to work. And that's why you wanted them. And so you want to make sure that you respect those differences once they get there. And what does that mean? So in practice, I've had jobs where I was doing something in a way that was different than how my manager would have done it. And I was getting feedback around, no, don't do it that way. I would do it this way, do it this way. And that's what success was benchmarked as. My manager saying, here's how I would do it. Please do it this way. And I'm coming in and saying, really frankly, as a woman, I can't adopt the same strategy 
as what you're adopting as a man. And I think that applies across so many different dimensions. You take that and you want to play that forward and think about, okay, so someone is coming in and I've brought them into my team because I think it's really important that we don't just hire from top tier universities and that we bring people in that come from other backgrounds. I think boot camp engineers are really interesting because they come with so much life experience in a different domain, which can be super useful when they come in and they bring it to your software development. And they're like, well, I came from this other background and here's how that company did it. And here's how we can apply that. And that's a strength. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you want to look at that and say, hey, they have a different idea about how we should run our meetings maybe, or the way I talk to them in our one-on-ones, or I actually like my recognition to be delivered in a different way. And you want to listen and ask questions about this thing. So creating an environment for the people you're bringing in is a lot about engaging them, frankly, on what do you need to be successful? What am I doing that works for me that won't work for you and that I should stop doing? And how do I figure out how to coach you as someone who's different than me to success? And and I I just, that's, where I spend lots of my time trying to think about that. Is this something that came up in your in your own experience? I guess kind of rising through the ranks at Apple and then at Stripe. Have you had to kind of deal with the situation when you were being, I guess, managed personally or when you were managing yourself? Is, is this something that I guess you learned on the job or is this something that you've picked up from someone? Yeah, in both directions. So I've learned it as a manager where I was assuming that, okay, so most important thing to me as an individual is that my manager has weekly one-on-ones with me. Like respect our time, don't bounce me around and, you know, be present when we have our one-on-one. I really think that's important. And I was actually assuming that that was the most important thing for everyone who reported to me. And at one point I had uh, 10 people reporting to me. I was doing, I I was running uh, an engineering onboarding program and I was spread too thin. And I'm sitting there going, I can't keep it up with all everything up but I cannot drop these one-on-ones. It's the most important thing I do each week. And a coach I was working with said, why don't you ask people, you know, what's the most important thing I can do for you? And some people, I was like, how often do we need to be meeting? And someone's like, eh, once a month is fine. And I was, oh. <laughs> and so, so you can make these assumptions in all sorts of directions. Mm-hmm. So that's like an example where I was making an assumption as a manager that was causing me to do more work than I needed to and triage my time inappropriately. Uh, and then sort of in the in the inverse where I was an individual contributor, I, I alluded to this one sort of situation where basically someone was saying, I want you to get this thing done. And, and as a leader, frequently you have to get organizational buy-in to your ideas. And for myself and a lot of other uh, people I've worked with, the way you do that is sort of a soft power way where you quietly solicit support and you're not necessarily standing in front of the problem, trumpeting it as I am the cheerleader and this is, this is the problem solving. You just kind of talk to people and you get everyone on board. And then all of a sudden one day it just happens. And I had a manager that was advocating for the like kind of bulldozing, go up there and be like, this needs to happen. You, you're going to get on board. You, you're going to get on board. And I was like, if I do that, people are going to feel attacked by me. I cannot go do that. I'm doing it this other way, but you can't see me doing it the other way. And so it was really hard for my manager to understand that. I never could get him to understand that there is a difference between that, between him and myself and that what worked for him doesn't work for me. Like he didn't see it. Right. And that like really crystallized it for me as a path for myself as a leader. And I feel like this is, I mean, this goes beyond technical management. It goes beyond uh, white collar work altogether too, because humans in general, we project so much of our worldview and our approach and our, like how we want to be 
perceived and treated onto others. Uh, most hiring managers don't even understand personality types, don't understand that like humans are born with different personalities and like at least 50% of it is genetic and there's styles, there's communication differences. How do you get that to change, right? Like how do you train new managers to like understand and look at it differently? Is it more just education and sending them to trainings? Is it just overall awareness on a company level? It's a good question. I think it starts with, you know, everything comes from incentives, really. Like, how do you drive human behavior as what's rewarded? So you can give people trainings, but if it doesn't tie back into how their work is valued, um, then you're not going to actually affect long-term change for them. And so one of those things is by putting it in people's job descriptions. <laughs> what is your job? I view my personal success as a manager to come from the success of the people who report to me. What did I enable them to achieve? And it's not like what anyone saw me doing. It's like, how much was I able to get out of their way and get them to level up their own skills? But if my manager is telling me you're valued on how many lines of code you contribute, like hopefully no one's telling their managers that, but let's imagine that were the case. It's not the case for me. Then I'm going to go, oh, well, my main job is writing lines of code and everything else I'm doing is extra that I'm just doing because I'm passionate about it. Sure. And that can create that kind of dissonance. So how do you create a world where we define your job as empowering others, where we're saying, we're giving you these tools, we're giving you these trainings because they will help you do what we've defined as your job better. And then it all lines up in a better way. Right. And that makes sense. But I think what the main difficulty that I see is like, how do you measure that outcome, right? Because like lines of code is very measurable. Like <laughs> birth PR is closed. But like, how far have you enabled your team to feel included and understood and appreciated? It's very hard to quantify. So I feel like adding incentives to it could be hard. I think when your company is bigger, you have more tools. I, mm -hmm. I think that the employee uh, satisfaction surveys are actually a great tool for this. Mm -hmm. So Stripe did one, does one twice a year, and there are extensive questions, anonymous questions that a manager can only see the results if there are a statistically significant number of answers about how you're doing as a manager. And so they ask those questions on there and your manager sees those results about how supported do they feel? When's the last time your manager had a conversation about your career? Do you trust that you can go to your manager with problems? Like all those kinds of kind of questions about how they view the relationship with you. And then the other thing is you do have business metrics that you're probably driving in your team. And those are the other metrics that actually matter. I'm not writing the lines of code, but the business metric that my team is driving is my metric as well. And if my team is happy and healthy, then they're doing well on their business metrics. Yeah. And speaking of being kind of uh, understood and included in, in a way that you, you know, feel most comfortable in, one feedback that I always hear is, you know, the industry is pushing more and more, at least most companies are pushing to create more gender diversity in their engineering organization. And one thing that always comes up is oftentimes you're the only female engineer in a team or you're the only female leader, or the only student. Uh, I'm sure when you went to school, it wasn't very different, far from being a 50-50. What, what can organizations do or what can managers do to like, while we see that shift where it's more balanced, to make sure that female engineers are feeling they're appreciated, they're not feeling out of place in any way? Yeah. And one thing that people have, there's been some studies on this, but it's better to consolidate your women engineers rather than sprinkle them throughout your organization if possible. Uh, Women want to work in 
they don't want to necessarily be the first woman on a team or the first woman at the company. And so mm-hmm. one thing is you want to think about things early. Once you hit a certain size, it just gets harder and harder. But the other is once you have some some women on your team, don't go, okay, every team gets one woman because that was really hard for that sense of community that the part of, part of the reason why we want the gender balance is to have people of different types to talk to and people being alone makes that difficult. But then the other thing is to be aware of the fact that anyone, I think this is not just a woman thing, but if you are a minority in a group, you feel like you have to prove yourself more. And that will mean that you might take on more thankless jobs to show your value by being helpful. So uh, be cautious of the, uh, the, the underrepresented person in your group, taking notes all the time, or being the one to organize your social events, or any of those things that are not actually a core part of your job tend to get done more by someone who wants to be like, no, look, I'm, I'm so valuable. I'm here. And it's not fair. So, (laughs) because it keeps them from actually spending their time on the things that will get them ahead. Right. And it's partially the manager's job to keep them focused by understanding those tendencies. Right. Because even if you don't notice it, your manager can like help you be like, Hey, you really need to be doing all those other things. Well, even, even the, it's still want to keep the onus off of the person because they might really be like, but no one's doing this and I want to be helpful. So my last team, we had a note-taking rotation team meeting every week. There was a list, everyone took notes and it just went through the list and there's no like, Oh, who's going to do it. It just was done that way. You make them group tasks. You call them out as tasks that everyone has to do and you and you make sure everyone does them. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I do 100% see that as like a manager's job, but also like process oriented. Cool. Well, switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about recruiting and because again, it's pretty rare to have an engineering leader on this. I want to talk about engineering management, engineering leadership and like recruiting relationship. Because in many cases, you will hear of stories of recruiters struggling to connect with engineering managers, struggling to build a strong relationship. And I hear a lot about sort of advice from recruiting side. Like, how do you make it better? How can you build a better relationship with your hiring managers, et cetera, et cetera? I'm curious to hear the reverse side of it, right? Like, how do engineering managers perceive talent acquisition organization and recruiters? What kinds of relationships do you want to build with them? And what can they do to be better at it? I know that's many questions loaded in one, but I will (laughs) see them to you as you go. Yeah. So like a lot of things, culture comes from the top. And so I have worked at places where the message really is recruiting is the single most important thing you can do as a manager. And I hear that all the time. And so when I hear that, I'm going, who can help me with this? So I've always had really good relationships with my recruiting partners because I view them as my partners in a key part of my job and experts at what they do. The best relationships that I've had with, with my recruiters are when we sit down and spend time aligning on what I am looking for in a candidate. And when I come out of that being like, When I know that the recruiter is better at looking at someone's LinkedIn profile or resume and determining whether they're a fit. I mean, I've had recruiters that are so much better at that glance and they're like, nope, yes, nope, yes. And I was like, oh, you did that so fast. And I'm looking at them like, how did you make that decision? Like, that's where I want to be, where I'm going to be better at having a conversation and sussing out the team fit, but sort of that initial, what's our bar? What are we looking for? What are the signals that you see and how people write it up on their resume? Like, that's what you all do. And that's what I look for the expertise 
expertise on. So proving, I think an engineering culture in general is you earn an engineer's trust when you prove your expertise in your own fields. And so my advice to talent leaders is, Prove your your expertise by being able to communicate with an engineering leader on their level with the, the things that they that matter to them and understand the nuances of what the role that they're looking for, what it is and what it is not. But I guess uh, one thing that gets in the way of that is exactly the proving yourself piece because most recruiters feel like, you know, well, I don't understand all of this, right? Like half of it sounds like a foreign language for me from names of programming languages to all the new technologies that are coming up like uh, on a weekly basis, which is kind of what in many cases makes them feel inadequate of like creating that partnership and building that relationship, right? Because it takes a certain level of comfort to be like, yeah, I don't know this and I'm not expected to know it. Uh, versus most of the time the approach they take is like, oh, I'm expected to know this. I feel like I'm like, you know, I'm going to be called out because all these engineers are so technical and I barely understand the meaning of most of this. Do you feel like it's the engineering manager's responsibility to make them feel comfortable in that setup? Or is it more like TA should figure out how to get recruiters comfortable having those conversations and not feeling inadequate in those situations? I'm not sure whose job it is, but I think it is important to be able to express lack of knowledge. Mm -hmm. I do it regularly, actually. And I think that's a strength because you can't learn unless you admit you don't know something. So coming into a conversation and saying, I am an expert at recruiting mobile devs. I've been doing it for 20 years. I really know what to look like, but I've never recruited for Ruby on Rails. I know you're looking for Ruby on Rails, but what are other keywords? What are the frameworks? You know, show that you know how to recruit for mobile, for example. Like, these are what I would look like and look for in mobile, but I just don't know it in this paradigm. Can you walk me through it? Can we go through a pile of these and you can tell me what to look through? Like, I would appreciate that. And I would hope that other good leaders would appreciate that too. Maybe not everyone would, but that for me would be such a win to have that conversation. And I can't help but segue this into the whole conversation around keyword-based top of the funnel evaluations because, (laughs) you know, I I care a lot about going beyond resumes and like moving past the keywords-based approach because you know and just from the way you describe it and i know for a fact this is kind of how recruiting happens at most organizations right recruiters are trained to look for keywords which unfortunately boils it down to like who's good at writing resumes that have all the right keywords versus who's not and not about like who has the skill and knowledge and who doesn't have you found anything that can kind of help assist that? Because like, again, an ideal feature is where it's not a recruiter's job to be reading a resume and trying to see if somebody's qualified for the job, right? One, it's very hard to do so. And two, really a recruiter's job is to build those relationships, is to convince someone to come work at the company, not to make a judgment about their skill based on uh, the keywords on their resume. Yeah. I think the challenge comes in what kind of roles you're hiring for and what stage your company is at. So when you're working somewhere big, what you want are growth mindset focused people who have drive. And like, it doesn't matter what's on their resume, except if the resume shows that they spent a whole lot of time doing nothing in their career. And they're like, wow, they clearly don't have drive. But when you're in us, I think in the situation where... I only have one person I can hire, just one person. How do I find that person that can do 20 20 different things? A proxy is that they've done them before. 
that do, and, and the sad thing is, yes, that means you're closing the door on other valuable candidates, but sometimes that's the trade-off we're making. I think that for some of those entry-level positions, Stripe was doing something I think that's that's similar to what you've been doing with Code Signal, which is that idea of show what you can do, demonstrate what you have done. Um, and I, I really love that. Um, and I think that is going to serve us really well. Um, I think I want to hire people coming out of boot camps. And sometimes when all they have on their resume is the boot camp, it's like, well, that doesn't tell me anything. Right. Because it's also a very mixed signal, right? There are some really great graduates from boot camps and others that really aren't qualified. So it's a it's a very mixed signal to use as a proxy, just just stand alone. But you're absolutely right. Like the biggest opportunity, at least today, to go beyond resumes is early talent recruitment, early talent hiring. However, as education becomes more democratized, I feel like it's going to be important for more senior positions as well, because it's a self-reinforcing cycle, right? Like those who have a bootcamp on their resume probably end up not so exciting looking job on their resume and not so exciting looking set of technologies. So it might just kind of gradually keep segueing different people into different directions. But yes, absolutely. Like the early talent is by far the number one place where it's a massive, massive opportunity to go beyond resumes. Any parting thoughts or any any advice to people listening? Um, I'm hiring. Come <laughs> 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 work with me. <laughs> what roles are you hiring for? That could be a good good plug here. Yeah, um, we're hiring for a senior full stack generalist um, and also data analyst uh, role, both reporting to me and working on my team with me. So, Awesome. Well, if you're listening and you're interested in working with an amazing engineering leader, please go ahead and apply. Thank you so <laughs> much. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Go to recruitingatscale.com to find more episodes and make sure to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.